I'm Ben Knorr, and this is Coffee Talk. Hello, and welcome again to the official podcast of the Guitar Department at Berklee College of Music. My name's Ian, and we have another episode of Coffee Talk for you. This week, we're joined by guitarist and film composer Ben Knorr. Ben's a recent alum of Berkeley and a recipient of the Sam Isenson Award and the Courtney Hartman Roots Guitar Award through the American Roots Music Program, as well as the Don Wilkins Award for film scoring. Ben's an accomplished guitarist who's played bluegrass and roots festivals all over Canada and the U.S., but has been recently been working as a composer and guitarist in L.A. for the production company Audio Machine. His work with them has had his music played in TV spots and trailers for Game of Thrones, Little Fires Everywhere, and recently Season 2 of Netflix's Bridgerton. As always, a lot of this content will also be available on YouTube, and we have a ton of other great content on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, so give us a like and a subscribe on whatever platform you use. Here's our interview with Ben Knorr. I'm Kim Perlack. I'm the chair of the guitar department at Berkeley College of Music, and welcome to another Coffee Talk. We are really excited because we have an alum today with us. So let me introduce everybody as usual, and then we'll get to our special guest. Uh, we got Cheryl Bailey, our assistant chair, as usual. Hey, Cheryl. Hey, I actually have my Berkeley guitar department mug back in action. I love it. I love it. We have Ian Steed, um, our senior coordinator here. Hey, Ian. Hey, y'all. Coffee cheers. And we have Ben with us. Ben, coffee cheers to you all the way from L.A. Cheers. It's good to see you. Thank you for coming back, so to speak. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is super exciting. Yeah, this is great. So we're all back in the office, um, in the guitar office. And and Ben, you're joining us from L.A. Um, Is that your home studio where you are? No, so this is actually uh, the studio I work at. Um, so I work for a production company called Audio Machine that they primarily focus in like trailers and TV and advertisement. Um, so this is my like room at the studio, but um, but I live pretty close by. So that's beautiful. If you all can't, you know, you are listening in the podcast audio version. It's a beautiful room. You got a nice, gorgeous room set up, Ben. Thank you. Yeah, I've been I've been working at it. Um, I like to have well, I really appreciate the windows because I I like to know what time it is. <laughs> but um, I enjoy having a lot of instruments around me, so I can if I'm feeling like uninspired, I can just grab something and then it'll hopefully spark an idea. So, well, this is great. So everyone's going to want to know how you got to that place so quickly after your graduation. So we're going to spend some time um, thinking about that. But in our tradition, um, I guess the most important first question is. Are you drinking coffee today? And if so, I, what you got there? I am drinking coffee. Uh, so right now, it's I guess you could call it an oat milk latte of sorts. I, uh, <laughs> there was a little bit of coffee left over from yesterday. Heated it up in the microwave. Sorry about that. If you guys are purists, <laughs> and then <laughs> and then put some uh, like froth oat milk in it, and it tastes good. You know, it's getting the job done. So usually, I think um, my preferred coffee is like a flat white with whole milk. But um, but yeah, I can't complain. Pretty good. See, Ben, that's like the utilitarian and fancy approach together. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever's there, man, that works, you know, you're making yeah. it work. That's great. Um, ben, do you remember 
could you tell us a little bit about when you were at Berkeley, like what years you were here and what you remember about your time, the early part of your time here? What stands out to you? Yeah, absolutely. So I was um, I was at Berkeley from 2014 to 2018. Um, I think my earliest memory was probably like getting onto campus and just being absolutely both like super excited, but also super scared that there's like, okay, everyone around here is, is absolutely talented. So it's like, who am I to be here? But also understanding that I, I'm here for a reason and excited that like, okay, there's there's a future here. Um, but then I remember the first couple of days being like, there is so many different like worlds that you could spend your time in. And so it's like really, um, I guess I, I didn't even fully appreciate it until like maybe a couple of years in that I was like, okay, I, I can easily get down paths of like, okay, here's a whole world of music that I've never experienced before and maybe could only experience in at Berkeley because of all these like international people and stuff. Um, so that was really exciting. But, um, but yeah, I think, I think to, to <laughs> clarify the question, uh, is like, just like, yeah, it was, I was just super excited that there's so many different options for, um, because guitarists and musicians, because there's, there's people from all around the world there. So. I think what's really interesting to me is that I was pretty new when you came. You were like in the second class I met because I came in 2013. Okay, yeah. So I feel like with your class as well, I was going through the same thing of processing like, okay, well, I want to do everything. There are these moments where I was like stopping at every different teacher's office to get to know them and taking lessons. I had these big stacks of CDs. People would be like, listen to this and play this. And one day I came in with armfuls of stuff and Rick Peckham was like, you know, you don't have to do everything, right? Like, you don't have to do everything when you're here. But I was so exciting. And so I had to find, like, my way through it. Um, how did you find your way through it as a student? Like, how did you find the pathways that kind of made you who you are, that sort of honored who you were when you came, and then helped you branch out into different areas? So um, I guess I, I grew up playing a lot of acoustic uh, folk music, especially with like my, my brother is a fiddle player, my sister is a, an accordion player. So we like growing up playing folk music. So I knew that that was like the core of where I was coming from. Um, so I think in the beginning, it was like I was trying to find that group of people, which uh, the American Roots program, which is technically part of the string department, they, they do a really good job of teaching that and like honoring the tradition, but also progressing it. Um, and so that was kind of like, I think the family that I found, but also the guitar department was like, wow, there's so many different styles of players. And there's a teacher almost for every style that you wanted to play kind of like, okay, let's dive into this under this. So I remember uh, Bobby Stanton was my, my first teacher. And he, I think he's like the perfect person to first start you off um, at Berkeley because like, he was just so encouraging and so full of like excitement for me, but also like had you know wealth of knowledge um so it was cool that he kind of helped me connect with other people and like other uh, i think i think he was a person that helped me started playing for like the um what was it called the bpc shows and such so he, he connected me with someone that like ran that so that kind of got me into that which showed me a new type of playing that was kind of like okay here's large ensemble playing that's like not about the guitar at all the guitar is like maybe secondary it's just kind of like it's there as you know rather than like in a small band where it's like you know only a couple people that your role is much bigger so it um it kind of showed me how versatile i mean i already knew how versatile the guitar was but like expanding that um the function in the band so uh i guess at berkeley i realized that i wanted to keep playing but then I didn't want to just get the playing side of Berkeley. So it's like, how do I 
you know, balance the learning of like the technical side and the, you know, theory and all that. Um, and that kind of came about. So I was performance major and film scoring major, I think until my sixth or seventh semester when I ended up dropping performance to really focus on film scoring because um, I realized that it's like, okay, film scoring is going to take a lot of work that uh, I don't know if I could keep up the, you know, practices. Um, I was studying with Richie Hart at the time, which fantastic jazz guitarist. Um, I actually wish that maybe I I'd started with him earlier and had more time with him because I only had two semesters. Um, but he completely changed my mind in terms of like how to improvise because his approach was all about line. Like he, we didn't really talk about chord progressions. It was more like, okay, so if you're going from like a F major seven to an you know, E flat seven, it's like, okay, what, what are all the different possibilities that the notes within the chords could move? Um, so very like uh, chorale based and then creating lines based on that, which I thought was absolutely very, very musical, like fundamentally musical, but then also just made sense in terms of like, what is the listener listening for? It's like, you're trying to follow lines. You're not just jumping all around these chord things that, you know, guitarists are very easy, easy to do. Um, so I think that was really cool. Um, but yeah, and then, and then film scoring kind of started and that was another world that was like, okay, this is something I need to really dig into because before Berkeley, I'd not actually even experienced, like had anything to do with MIDI. Um, which is the main, I guess, uh, I don't know if you call it a language, just basically like what represents the music um, in the digital audio workstation. So it's like, it's a note on event and a note off event. And there's a bunch of different parameters that can be like, I guess, coded into that one note. Um, so yeah, so uh, I guess we'll talk about that in a bit, but <laughs> but yeah, finding my path, uh, I was I just very excited. Um, there was also a period of time in Berkeley, which was exciting that I was playing a lot of Turkish music. So um, I had borrowed the uh, guitar department's uh, fretless guitar, maybe for a little bit too long, but it was very exciting because <laughs> it's, again, um, microtonal music, which I'd never had any experience with and trying to dive into that world and both like appreciate it, but then also like understand it and train my ear. Because it's not just like, okay, where's my fingers go? It's also like, how how is this supposed to sound? And then what are the ornaments to make these notes sound um, really, uh, you know, legit and honor the tradition behind that. So that was really exciting too, um, which I unfortunately have not played much Turkish music since Berkeley, which I'd love to eventually get back into it, but I don't know when that would be. So this is so cool because um, I've just taken a ton of notes as we're talking. So I'm hoping to touch on things and I can tell that Cheryl and Ian are picking up on certain things that you're saying. Uh, but I think overall, this is a great example when people say like, how is it that a department sort of starts to shift to support students? Like you are a person that I just remember so distinctly coming in, like already just playing great on all kinds of acoustic music. And then as your in imagination sparked, we were thinking, well, how do we support somebody like that? Like, how do we support someone who's finding all these connections with different styles of music, but also bringing them into writing? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times when people are insecure and they're coming in, like Cheryl and I will sit with students who are coming in and they'll say like, well, I, I'm a little insecure about my playing, but it doesn't matter because I, I'm gonna be a composer. I'm gonna be a writer. I'm not gonna be a player. And I, I think like you're a great person to give advice to people to say, maybe the idea of developing your playing serves you as an overall musician. It's not just like, so that you feel like, okay, I can be a virtuoso or am I a virtuoso and where do I stack up? But it's like everything you described that you learned from Richie absolutely must help the way that you write 
when you write lines, right, the fact that you can play them and hear the counterpoint, that the idea that you played all these Turkish sounds and all of that influence with microtonality has got to bring a color to your music that's really interesting. Like, we can, we're going to talk about the American Roots program as well and all of that history and all of that stuff that you delved into. And then right before we hit record, we were talking about the newest incarnation of our collaboration with film and this experiment that you're continuing now with like, you know, preparing the guitar, right? With all kinds of clips and corks and, and this way that David Tronzo teaches students to make a guitar sound like different instruments. So do you think you could talk just a little bit more about the connections that you started to make with your playing work and study and how that feeds into your writing? Absolutely. Um, so, so I think the, so I started playing, I guess, uh, through the American Roots Department and um, I guess the guitar department as well in the different styles, which like brought me together with different types of musicians. Um, so there's like arrangers that I'd be meeting with, which is a different mindset than like a band leader, um, like a, just, you know, classic band. Um, I was also part of a band called uh, Beard Walls at Berkeley, which was really exciting. I actually played banjo in the group, but um, it was kind of like all the members were from different styles. Like there's like, I think um, the drummer, he was like more in like the the jazz hip hop realm and the piano player is more like gospel. Mandolin player was like totally bluegrass, fiddle player bluegrass. Um, and then the singer, she was from Portugal. Um, Moro was her name, or Mariana Seca is her name, but Moro is her artist name. Um, so everyone's just absolutely incredible. It was kind of like, okay, so where do I bring my voice to this? And I feel like my voice was like, okay, I appreciate the culture and like cultures of the, the, the music behind a lot of cultures. And I, and I want to learn it not for the sake of just creating a pastiche of that, but I want to get deep enough. That I can actually like appreciate the tradition. Um, a little side note on that lately, I've been <laughs> working on Swedish music because uh, there's a band uh, Vassen, which they recently, I guess the guitarist left them recently, but essentially it's like a 12 string guitarist, Roger Talroth, um, five string viola, which is, um, Michael Mikael Marin and then Olaf Johansson on Nickel Harpa. And this group, it just fascinates me how big of a sound they can get with only three musicians. And it's just, it's incredible. So uh, with that, I guess, so Roger's tuning, he tunes his guitar um, A-E-A-E-A-E, if I'm correct. Oh, remember it's A-D. It's a fourth. Yeah, so it's a fourth. So A-D-A-D-A-D. So it's like the, the A that he has is actually as low as the bass. Like the bass is A. Um, so he has like three octave range within just the open strings. So you get this massive sound. Um, and that's been really fascinating. So anyways, so going back about the connections about the music is, uh, I think it was really teaching me in terms of like, okay, how do I use this instrument both as an expressive thing, but as a functional piece of a puzzle, you know, it's like, sure, I might, I might be a player, but I'm also, I think a creative in terms of like, okay, so how can I solve someone else's problem with this instrument um and that uh, kind of shows itself in different ways um the guitar like the the prepared guitar stuff is really cool because it's like you can get a completely different sound by even just like modifying your strings or like modifying your strings where you put like flat wounds on an acoustic like think outside the box in terms of like okay this is maybe untraditional but um but it kind of you know it creates a sound that that sound then is a character it's like the the way that i think of guitars like especially even if i'm going to buy a guitar it's like am i going to buy this guitar because i want it to be a workhorse that like you can play pretty much anything on it and it is 
good at that or do I want something that's excellent at only small specific things and it's like I'm buying a character that I'm going to only use on a couple tracks but when I do use it you'll be like oh that's that guitar for this purpose um so it's kind of like in that world but um but yeah so the prepare guitar so going back into the function of the actual instruments like so you're solving people's problems a lot of the times in film when people are writing for guitar they're not guitarists and they don't know the limitations of the guitar so it's kind of like either you get mad it's like oh this part's impossible or you actually like step back and like okay so how do i make this possible um there's one of the first albums that i actually did for audio machine was called nomad which is kind of based on the playing of a Gustavo Santolaya, who's a really famous guitarist, composer. I think he's um, he's from South America. I need to remember the, the specific country, but really, really fantastic stuff. So he actually started on Ron Rocco, which is um, this guy right here. Oh, where is it? Right here. No, right there, <laughs> which I can show you. Um, which I just want to say for the audio people, Ben is pointing to that instrument, and, and uh, you can show us later what that is. Yes. Uh, so I guess, so he started on that instrument and then he does a bunch of guitar stuff. Um, so he's done stuff for like The Last of Us and like Babel and stuff like that. So it's a very specific sound. But anyway, so we, we, sidetracking, the album was based on his playing. Um, and so I work with a couple other composers here that they aren't, they're all piano players, basically. Um, one, one was a cellist. And so what they're bringing me was like different, like really basically like etudes of arpeggiations and super close-knit chords that are like okay I could try and get it like with a huge big stretch but it wasn't actually going to be musical it was like okay the notes are there it's not musical so I ended up actually tuning the guitars in like a very strategic way that these chords which were very close usually would represent themselves horizontally on the fretboard ended up being squished together so you could almost grab it in like a closer like almost like an open chord shape and that's what ended up working and then kind of tracing myself through the entire track which um the luxury of this is that i had time to do that i could sit down and really analyze okay what is how do i perform this um properly which i know in some studio situations that's not the case you have to just sit down and play it and then in this case it'd probably be like okay that's unplayable which is not entirely true. So it's kind of like, you know, you have to realize, well, first have a relationship with the person that you're working with. It's like, okay, are you going to invest your own time to solve their problem? Or is this more of an official situation where it's just kind of like you're hired to just play guitar and hopefully you're able to sit in the first camp um, more frequently than the second. Um, but it's kind of like, it is very exciting when you're like, ah, I figured it out. I could do it, <laughs> you know, rather than like, oh, I thought that was unplayable. Um, so, yeah, so I think the relationship with the function of the guitar, as well as then the player and the creativity of it, um, and mar like the marriage of the two. So, so this is so cool because this is where like the people ask, how do alumni become consultants, and this is how, right? Because when <laughs> you were a student, we were we had this big idea of having this cross course collaboration with your other department with film scoring and you were there and and um, we just kept pointing to you like Ben is going to be one of these people who could be on both sides. That's the other thing about developing your playing, right, is that you can then solve problems musically as a player. And then you also have a good idea of how to write things. And you're right, not a lot of composers who because most composers don't play guitar. It's a really strange instrument to write for. Mm -hmm. It has a ton of possibilities for different sonic realities so that's why it's so valuable in film and tv right so we have a project that is in its probably now seventh or eighth year right Maybe. where 
we have we're trying to train players to be problem solvers and then also maybe assist composers into when you're confronted with the guitar here are some things that will work and here are some things that won't work right um and so you were one of the very first people we were thinking about and in fact i think you were one of the first people who actually sat with our faculty member who runs that collaboration on our end david tronzo and did a prepared guitar sort of exploration that's now become a standard that's true right yeah i think so um yeah, yeah that, i remember that was super exciting i'm actually um i still have the little bag from true value which i think was one of the, like the hardware stores in back bay that has yeah. you know so i have like rubber corks in here um sorry rubber stoppers and then there's corks on this guitar this, actually so I, I don't know how much playing um yeah, do it but so this this guitar is actually set up well not officially set up but it's a uh, national high strung so if you haven't heard of that it basically it's like the the top strings of a 12 string so it's like the the bottom four strings the e a d g are tuned uh or they're set up with an octave higher so it's actually and then the other two are the same so you get like you know the weirdest thing to play an f chord right and then it's, it's muted because of the corks, but um, you play an F chord and it's like, wow, that does not sound like an F at all because you're used to like the low resonance of the F. But anyway, so this um, right now is just experimenting because I'm going to be working on this kind of like underscore album of sorts that is going to be just kind of acoustic pulses. So it's trying to find different ways of like using acoustic instruments that I have to create sounds because like everybody's heard a guitar, which is there's a time and a place for a guitar that sounds like a guitar. But I think the modern way of looking at it is like, how do you disguise these instruments into different ways? So then I was, you know, like the, there's like tuning differences, which you can, you can get really tied up in trying to get the tuning right. Um, it's like a really short attack. So you can do like, like a really fast arpeggiated things would work better for this kind of thing rather than the sustain which kind of is there, but you know, so it's like using that in a really different way. So that, that's kind of what I've been experimenting with literally and, yesterday. And can, for people who can't see the guitar, what type of corks did you put in there? And, and he put them near the bridge, like kind of near the saddle. Yeah. So um, I guess for the, I know that on the uh, podcast, this won't be helpful, but they're essentially, I don't know what they'd be like small bottle corks. They're not as big as like a wine bottle cork. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, if you're going to send a note, you know, out to sea, you'd probably use one of these. <laughs> That's right. So this is like, I'm delighted because we would send David, our professor, out to True Value on field trips with students. And he made these little kits in bags to give to everybody, like, and stick them in the strings to create different sounds. That's so cool that all these years later, you're using that. Yeah, it's work. It's, That's so fun. Um, that's really, really cool. I love that. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, there's, uh, I guess, a couple other interesting things that I've been experimenting with, like, I guess, Ebo, which is not super untraditional, but that, that's been fun. Um, this new one, which I don't know if, if David's been hip to, uh, the Picasso guitar bow. Okay. It's like a two-sided bow that you stick and you can actually, like, so for acoustics, it goes in between the strings. Kind of, you know, it's almost a one-trick pony, but it's a pretty, pretty nice trick. Um, but uh, yeah, and then there's this other thing. Where is it? Oh, this jellyfish pick, which is 
you know, I've seen YouTube videos of the <laughs> guitar gadgets that are kind of, you know, but this is like basically a bunch of different strings that are on it. Um, so this, uh, yeah, right, sorry, it's in it has a wispy sound. So, you know, just a different sound, you know, you can kind of do tremolo-ish. It's, it's kind of hard to <laughs> maneuver, but it's like, oh, you know, it's even if that weird sound inspires something, it's like, okay, this is useful in my studio because it's like, it's creating an option that maybe you had never thought of before. So it's kind of like, I keep this stuff around, not entirely for the functional aspect, but even just for the creative, like, you know, it sparks an idea somewhere, but it is, they're, they're very, very fun to experiment with. And it takes you on a different journey every time. So, yeah. So Ben, I think people at this point are dying to know, like, what do you do in your job every day? And, um, how did you come to this job? Sure. Yeah. So I'll start with, I guess, the second part of the question. Um, right after I graduated, I uh, it was kind of actually hectic because um, because I'm Canadian, I am on I was on the student visa, which is the F1, and I had there's a after the student visa, there's the OPT, which is the optional practical training um, section of the visa, which usually you have one year um, to study. And I had used the pre-completion version of that so I could do some gigs at Berkeley um, legally. And so I, I think I ended up using, so you have 24 months of the pre-completion, which is 18, I'd used up 18 in those months, which then means I had condensed four months left of my OPT, which is kind of scary if you think about it, like, okay, I'm gonna move to a completely new city and I have four months before I have to leave the country or get a job that will get me this thing. So what I ended up doing, which was kind of untraditional, was I, uh, there was um, a directed study class with George Clinton, which was the old chair of the film scoring department. I think, I guess, maybe three chairs ago, um, he did a, a directed study. So essentially it's like just like a private lesson once a week with um, him that I ended up dropping the directed study that I had with my current film scoring teacher, which I dropped it for the credit, but I actually ended up taking the class till the end and like actually doing all the, the classes and all that with him because I was really enjoying it. But it was, so I dropped it so I could take it again, which ended up extending my F1 visa by a couple more months so that I had essentially, I think up until Christmas, and then a couple more months for the OPT. So I ended up extending my stay in LA to eight months uh, minimum maybe, um, which that actually ended up saving, I think my career, which is kind of a big statement to make, but it's kind of, it it allowed me to make the connections that I um, needed to make in order to stay here. Um, so I guess a little aside on that, any international students that are coming, there's like, there's a lot of ways that you can stay in the country. It's just kind of like, don't, use your OPT too soon because that might've been a mistake that I made. Um, because yeah, it, it is very important that you <laughs> have time to make the connections that you need. But so, anyway, so I, um, took that class and then right after, I guess I was interning, I think it's, yeah, I was interning in LA for a couple months and then an old Berkeley connection that I had, someone that I had done one of the film scoring classes with. He was also my RA when I was uh, living in 98. I don't know if 98 Hemway is still a dorm, but uh, he was he was uh, an RA there. He, I think he had saw some Instagram video that I'd done. Um, and I think it sparked his memory of like us, us time together because he was putting together a team of young composers, basically like, he had had not the most exciting internship experience um and he had recently quit his internship and then went to a new boss and the new boss he was just basically like the boss was asking him about 
the industry from like the people starting out point of view. And, you know, Jeff, uh, he was saying that maybe it wasn't as, you know, maybe he thought it was. So this guy wanted to put together a team of young, eager minds based on their character, not necessarily their skill, because he believed that if you have the right mindset and character, then you can learn whatever it takes. So, yeah, so I was one of the original six of those people to kind of be brought in and then under this guy's wing to just learn about trailer music. And originally I was like, okay, what is, what is trailer music? Right. It's like, you know, you see trailers in the movie theater or on YouTube or, you know, Netflix, when you uh, (laughs) log in is like, okay, well, what is this? And it, it honestly is a style of music that I kind of looked down on because of how simple it was originally, but then since learned um, to really appreciate how simple and complex it really is. Like, for anyone that might look at advertising music as like, oh, this is something I could do in, you know, in my sleep. It takes a lot of years to be able to learn how to do it in a couple hours, you know, let alone, you know, and it's, that being said, it's kind of like, it's a different approach. It's more about the sounds that you choose rather than what the notes you play. So, you know, maybe as I've been kind of talking about earlier in this chat about like, okay, here's how to make different sounds with the guitar. It's like, that's where my mindset's been for the past couple of years, because sure, I might, you know, have a bunch of stuff that I've learned from Berkeley about the theory behind a bunch of really complex ideas, but I only get to use a fraction of that in every day versus like, okay, here's the fundamental, how do you play guitar? It's like, okay, here's a triad. How do you make that triad sound good? And understanding that, okay, the sound of the triad is almost more important than how you voice the triad sometimes. At least that's what I find um, here is it's kind of like, yeah, it's about the sound. I'm sorry. So then I uh, started with that company um, and we originally were hired to do underscore music. So that's the type of music that is like under dialogue in, in TVs and stuff. Um, but then we started, ended up working on more like advertising and trailers and stuff like that. And some phone games as well, which has been like a different challenge. So it's, it's been a lot of fun. So Ben, everything you're saying is so great. I, I'm teaching a class at two and, and our whole thing is about how you sound is more important than what you play, you know? And, wow. Uh, yeah. And so this is great. So I see a special guest star in our future, <laughs> but yeah, this is so, it's so cool because as a classical musician, that is such an interpreter thing to say, right. And mm-hmm. it plays such a role in composition that people don't think about and improvisation, which is really spontaneous composition. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's so cool. Um, but what's your day like? Like, what is a typical, is there a typical day in, in what you do? Like, we're looking at your beautiful studio where, if you're listening, he's got guitars behind him and uh, different instruments and all your preparation materials and all your microphones and things around you. Like, what what is your day like when you, when you get to the office and make your coffee and go? So, uh, it's very collaborative, which I'm very grateful for because there's, so we started out at six and now there's like close to 12 people working in the same building. Um, out of those 12, I think 10 of those are composers. One's like a studio assistant, one's an engineer. Uh, well, technically two of them are like Berkeley grad engineers, but one of them is more focused on the actual mixing and the other is like editing samples and stuff like that. So, um, usually what, what happens, we show up, we, we start work at nine, um, go till around five, but usually are here till like later into the evening, um, which is very untraditional for, <laughs> usually you don't get a nine to five job at all, um, which I'm, I'm grateful for, but center. So we get here at nine and we have a morning meeting where we kind of just go around saying where everybody is, what's everyone's kind of like working on for the day. 
sometimes goals in terms of like, okay, I have to get this finished, whether it's like a client project where it's like, okay, I got to get this finished by end of day or end of the week. I might need help with, you know, I need some cello recording or something. Um, the nice thing about where I work, everyone, like there's a lot of piano players, but there's also like a string guy who plays, you know, cello and viola and all that. There's a woodwind guy that plays a bunch of like, you know, the double and single reed woodwinds. Um, and then I'm kind of like one of the more acoustic guitar guys. Um, I do, you know, play a bit of electric, but I, I feel like that that's what I'm trying to work on right now is really focusing in on electric tone, what makes a good tone versus what makes a bad tone and like what's usable about it. But so anyway, so then we do that, uh, we go around the circle and then usually coffee's brewing at that time. And then we kind of get our coffees and then go into our rooms. <laughs> and then we've been trying out this like uninterrupted time in the morning for us, like the first couple hours of your day, you're just kind of like you know, if you have questions for other people, you just kind of save them for the afternoon. Um, and then, yeah, it's like, you kind of just got to start the balls rolling. Cause the thing about, I guess, being a professional composer is you can't wait for inspiration. You got to kind of, you know, get a spark plug and get going somehow, whether that's like, okay, I'm going to do some research and watch a bunch of different trailers that you're trying to emulate. Uh, whether that's, if it's like a playing based album, the way the reason why I say that is because um, as a concept that as a composer I didn't really think of okay here's you know you think about composers like they're sitting at their desk with their you know candlelight and maybe they have you know manuscript paper which is like a very old fashioned way of looking at a composer there's still people that do that but more recently it's like okay someone sits down at a you know <laughs> at their computer and they're just like you know tapping at one note going through different sounds trying to find the sound that inspires them to write a piece. Um, so the luxury that I have is that I have physical instruments to inspire me as well. Uh, not not just samples. I mean, we have a bunch of really, really cool samples that do spark inspiration. But it's like sometimes if I'm really having a hard time starting the creative wheel, it's like I go and just grab an instrument, tune it in a weird tuning that I don't know where anything is, and then start messing around like that. Because it's like balancing the you're familiar with this standard tuning or or even drop D, dad get, all this stuff. Like you're you, you know that. But there's a time and place for knowing where you're going and there's a time and place for just kind of jumping into something. So it's like, if I really want to get the ball rolling, I just tune it in some weird, sometimes like an open tuning that I haven't messed around with much and then just start finding shapes. And then usually by finding those shapes, you make mistakes and you find interesting sounds within those shapes. And then that takes you down a whole route. Um, for the playing side of things, on the sound design aspect, like whether it's like... Um, even epic hybrid stuff or horror or sometimes comedy. It's like, it really takes a lot of creativity to take a sound and then morph it in a way that creates another like realm. Um, and so in that world, it's kind of like, I just find a bunch of sounds. I think, Oh, this is kind of a cool sound on its own. And then I start like filtering it, changing the pitch of it, going up or down, you know, like an, an octave, even um, adding reverb, adding different effects just to like change it in a way reversing it you know it's like okay i like that okay let's find another sound you know and like and then start piecing it together kind of like a puzzle piece um and sometimes those sounds come from organic sources like i you know i have some mics here set up where it's like i can play something and it's like okay what about just this one note and like you know i have the headphones on probably turn too loud because i'm trying to hear what the mics are capturing not just what i'm hearing and then it's like okay i like the sound of that okay i'm gonna record this stop put the guitar away okay all right fiddle with it you know, sometimes edit it if it's out of time and like <laughs> do that kind of stuff. So in the morning, it's it's very creative, experimental, um, basically to, to get your mind rolling. This is like if you're not already halfway through a project. Um, so you get that going. 
Um, and then by the time, you know, it's like lunchtime and we have lunch together because we think it's important to see each other's faces and, you know, talk about the day or talk about anything but music sometimes just to <laughs> kind of get yourself. It's always important to zoom out and then zoom back in because uh, perspective is one of our most useful tools, I think, as a composer, um, which is often lost. If you get too deep within your project, a few things start happening. You think either you're the best thing that this earth has ever seen. You're just like, wow, this is like, this is the greatest thing that's ever been written, or this is the worst thing that's ever been written. And I hate it. And the way you break out of that is actually like stepping away and giving yourself the opportunity to see it as someone has never seen it. Um, the, the other nice thing is asking someone else to come into the room. And even if they're standing over there, not even listening, you'll hear the piece differently or see different things you don't know. So that's been super helpful. Um, but yeah, so I guess that's that's kind of what happens if it's a creative start of the day. Alternatively, it's kind of like if you go in, what I like to do sometimes too at the beginning of the week is like write down, okay, this is what I'd like to do this week. Um, like to do is important because you also have to be very flexible. Um, specifically in this industry, like we call them customs where it's like, you know, say Disney is like, okay, this new trailer, we need, we need a custom track or a customization of this track. Um, and it needs to be done by Friday. That could come in on Thursday night and you might have a whole big plan for Friday where that's like, okay, I'm going to record a bunch of guitars and stuff. He's like, okay, you got to put that on hold, do it on the weekend or do it the next week um, and be ready for that. Um, so yeah, I like to start the week with an idea of what I'm going to do, but then also be okay with it completely, completely just disappearing. <laughs> so, which is uh, always exciting. Cheryl, there's been so much great stuff and I'm, I'm wondering um, what's on your mind? Like jump in. Well, a lot, of, a lot of stuff. I mean, there's really interesting things you brought up. I mean, one thing I, I was interesting when you're talking about studying with Richie Hart, because my feeling has always been, I mean, I, you know, pretty much I compose, but I, you know, nothing like what you're doing at all. But, you know, I always found the film scoring students were some of my favorite because of that openness. Because, you know, I would show somebody something and they'd be like, their imagination would just start to go with it. Like, oh, I could use that in something, you know? So I was always, always been fun to work with film scoring students. But, uh, and, and that's, I'm just really fascinated with you talking about all these, you know, you might try these different quirky things, prepared instruments and stuff like that to inspire something. You never know where it's gonna come from. So I, I really love that. Um, point of view about playing the instrument and creating music. I'm, I was just kind of curious, just, well, uh, even before I, I ask my question, but I also, you know, I love this thing that you guys are doing where you just go and do your work. D you know, like you have that solitude to get that focus. And then you, then you, what you're just saying there about being able to step away, like, okay, let it go, like go in there deep and then come out and get perspective. I think is really important whether you're working on your guitar playing or you're composing or these kinds of things. I think that's, or you're, you know, writing code or you're, whatever you're doing in your life, you know, it could be any of these things that you want to do at a high level, you know, with a lot of integrity and quality. But, um, I'm just kind of curious how much I'm sure you have different projects coming in and you know different companies but how much say you're doing a trailer for a show how much information do you get um, about that do are you working with the video or is it just an idea and and ha I'm 
sure this has happened, but does this happen a lot where maybe you write something and you bring it in and then it's, they said, that's not what I want. Like, how do you deal with that? You know, not taking that personally and just going back to the drawing board. Okay. Or, and how do you figure that out? What the client is really, cause you're putting sound to their image that they're trying to create. So, you know, like just maybe talk about that process a little bit. I think that's interesting. Sure. Yeah. So uh, when a custom comes in, usually there is no picture um, because nowadays how uh, easy it is to leak things. It's like there's no trust in that. So if we do get picture, it's like very rare, like like one in a hundred. So then it's like, OK, so how do you write something that actually will line up to picture? Um, usually they're cutting to your music. So they might have a general like, okay, here's what the sequence of shots that I want. But then once you give them the music, they'll adjust it to you or they'll have specific notes being like okay we, we need three hits kind of consecutively here um and you can put them in um like that but uh there's kind of like two two uh routes that usually happen either which has been happening a lot more actually is that they come in it's like okay we have this pop song or this like song by this artist that we need to be trailerized we call it um, which means adding weight, like cinematic weight. Like if you can imagine sitting in a movie theater and like these big drums, big um, sub elements and stuff like that. It's like usually when people are producing tracks, they aren't thinking about the entire spectrum. Like sure, you have a bass guitar or something in the bass realm, but it's like, what about the area underneath the bass realm? You know, it's like the subs and stuff, which, you know, when you're listening on even headphones and stuff, you don't really have the capability of hearing those frequencies. So, but in a movie theater, they have full spectrum speakers. So it's like, that's a whole nother world that you got to explore. So usually when you're adding trailer weight, it's like that realm, as well as filling out the frequency spectrum. So it's not just a bass guitar, you know, <laughs> a drum set, the guitars, and then a vocalist and stuff like that. It's like, okay, how do you fill in the gaps? Um, and so on that route, so the a song comes in and they want to trailerize it. Usually they have an idea of what section of the song they want trailerized. And um, yeah, so I, I guess a little bit about the trailer form. Um, most trailers are organized in three acts. There's the intro, which is like usually pretty sparse. Lately, like a ping or something, and then a bunch of silence, and then another thing, and then maybe some sound design, something else. Um, so that's like kind of act one, which is setting up, getting the people excited watching it, lots of room for dialogue big open shots kind of showing the scenery um act two is kind of where the motor starts like a little bit more excitement there is still dialogue so you can't be super busy um well you can't really be super busy in general but there's still a lot of dialogue it's kind of like the story what is the story about what is is the drama and the tension coming from and then the last act is like okay this is where we get the people excited for this movie it's like they are going to get out of their houses drive to the theater and pay money to see this movie so that's the end goal is that you're trying to get them out of their their world to put them in your world kind of thing um which if you think about it that's kind of like that's aggressive <laughs> which um as a person i'm not really super aggressive so that's kind of like something i've been having to really work at is like how do i go against my internal like calmness nice you know nice canadian typical that world and then go into uh and do aggressive music, you know? And that's something I've yeah, been working on. And so, yeah, so a trailer, a song comes in and they probably have an idea of what they want to do with it. Um, the hardest part is always the back end because it's the balance between throwing the kitchen sink at it. It's like literally everything you have trying to make it big and being sparse enough that you can actually give each element its ability to live in its frequency spectrum. Um, so overlays are a lot of fun because they're, I think they're 
easier than the custom the the custom tracks in a way because the musical elements are already there. You just have to expand on it. So sometimes it's like taking the progression that they have and then whether that's adding like a synth bass or like adding lower elements or filling in with strings and stuff like that. Um, or even just if they, if you're lucky enough to get stems, so that's like the individual instruments broken out as audio files, you can mute some of their elements and then replace it and do a different reharm of the chord progression and stuff. Um, and sometimes you have to even have to like change the melody and morph it into the way. Um, if you check out the most recent Batman trailer, Batman and the I think it's the, the trailer itself is called Bat and the Cat. Um, that's an audio machine track, not not one of mine, but one of my friends. And you'll notice that it has the I think Michael Giacchino's new Batman theme on top of the original track, which is Tomahawk. And if you listen to if you go to the audio machine website and look up Tomahawk and listen to that and then listen to this track you'll see that there's a lot of similarities, but it's basically a different track. So that's the second kind of thing that you're doing is like you're taking a track that you already have and then modifying it to fit the trailer, whether that's adding thematic um, material on top of it or even just changing it up in terms of shortening it, shortening sections, adding more hits and stuff like that. Um, that one is a little bit more difficult because you're both trying to solve their problem, but you're also going against your initial instinct of the music which is hard to kind of like, wait, no, no, I wrote this this way. And you have to get that out of your head and be like, okay, no, this is, you have to change this piece for their purpose. Um, which, you know, even, even if you don't think you have an ego, there is an ego deep within you that is trying to hold you back from, you know, changing what you've spent hours, even like, you know, nights, just getting this thing perfect. And then they're just going to chop it up into pieces and you have to be okay with that. Um, so that's kind of like the second route. And then the third is the, uh, custom completely new custom track which those are kind of rare because uh they're very risky is usually these trailer like so how the business works which is absolutely insane the studios so say like universal or these big studios they um obviously do all the filming for the the movie and then as that's being edited to the actual movie they have um sections of the film that they send off to trailer houses which are basically cutting places where people are like taking that film and putting it into a making the trailer but like the picture part of it and then those um trailer houses say you send it to three of them those trailer houses are competing against each other for the trailer that they then contact the music supervisors which um is an actual job that they literally just organize okay here's a big database of music that i gotta pitch tracks from to go here or work with individual composers so then those trailer houses say that there's three of them pitch to say three other trailer you know music supervisors so each of those now there's nine music supervisors each music supervisor might contact three composers so it's like you see you're competing against a lot of people so that's why it's very risky to actually write a completely new track because the chances of you actually getting that all the way through the ranks to the top is very rare so and also in this industry you don't get paid unless you actually make it all the way to the top so it's like yeah that that's the part of it it's like what is going on <laughs> but um so so that's why the custom tracks are not really as uh, we don't say yes to that uh, that frequently because unless there's a very high shot that we're going to get this it's probably a waste of time and some companies like disney they actually buy you out entirely which is good they actually pay for it um but you can't use anything from that track. Even if they, they we, we joke about it going into the, the Mickey Mouse locker where like you just don't see it again. They just buy it out and it's, it's gone. So yeah, it's, it's kind of exciting the different routes that a track can go from being like, you know, um, if you're working on it to it finishing. Um, 
the alternate route is that usually they can the actual company like say netflix or something they can go into the library and then just pick a track and then they edit it without you even knowing and then you don't know about it until you either get paid for it and you see that it's like oh i oh i got a trailer of this or you're just stumbling across youtube or netflix and then you see that happening so um and that's always exciting because like oh wow i didn't you know i never imagined it to be used in that way so that's really cool well, also, so, I mean, you also kind of answered my question in that you really have to have that sense of separating yourself from, I mean, you as much said you have your ego there, but you can't take stuff personally, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and I, that's really important if you're for a performer as well. I mean, you know, that's one place where it's really, you have to get to that place where it's like, you, you've got to not be attached to it. But definitely what you're doing, cause that, you know, I was thinking about that, like you write something and you think, oh, this is great. And then, you know, you see it somewhere and you're like, that's not what I wrote, but yeah. so that's, that's awesome. <laughs> Actually, that's a really important skill. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, you know, when I, I was thinking about you and Ian, Ben, and I, I think about you all as artists because I know that's when I met you. You were in a similar genre of playing, and um, I think this is an interesting time maybe to talk about how you balance your life as an artist and the music that you're making as an artist with this extension of your art that has become your professional life in a financial way and in another application. And I wonder if both of you, if I could hand it off to you and Ian, and you could both talk about how you've each done that a little bit. And, and you know, do you have time to make art, you know, and, and kind of keep going? And, and does that help feed what you're doing? And how does what you're doing that seems maybe removed from your art music actually in some ways feeding back into it? Mm-hmm. So Ian, I'm throwing it over to you to with some food for thought there in the beginning. Yeah, so I mean, one thing uh, with the um, with the sort of liberty that the uh, stability of this job gives me is that I can really pursue only the music that really interests me, which is not something I've ever done. <laughs> you know, like before I came to Berkeley, I was working a lot, taking literally everything. Uh, you know, was playing, you know, solo gigs, doing like, like, there would be a classical thing, there would be a jazz thing, there would be like, you know, weird things where I would be accompanying somebody, and it would, you would just take it, there was like, theater pit gigs, which I would never take now, not because they're not fun, they're a blast, sure, but like, I don't need to take those. And uh, like, now it's, really interesting that I can go really deeply into one specific thing, which, you know, if I was like only doing working musician stuff, maybe I'd need to spread my cards out a little bit better. But there's an interesting like sort of balance, like the hearing, you know, Ben, like what you did, right? And balancing a lot of the things and how deeply do you go into one thing? Or here's sort of like, a thing which is like depending on how like in what manner you go deep into one thing that it might actually be helpful for you to be more versatile right and one thing that i was i was wondering about when you were talking about all these things that you're doing on the guitar and like almost approaching it like new music right like on the edge of like like 
what people might say is like the avant-garde, right? Like new music and like making interesting sounds on the instrument using like a prepared guitar, right? There's like a thought that I had recently about like really good pop. Like really good pop somehow is always like, even though no matter how simple and like musically, like the content of it might be very simple or like how relatable it is to everybody. It's always a little on the edge of new music and like the avant-garde, which is a real trip that like, it's so relatable. And yet it's like, when it's good, it's like really on the cusp of something that's like, could be completely out. And what I'm curious about with you, Ben, is like, you know, given all that stuff, but also like, how has it affected your playing? Like, if you're out playing and really being a musician, like, as well as being this like heavy composer, like making this music, using these techniques to create these, these pieces for these trailers, like, how is rethinking of the guitar that way affecting your playing just as like a working musician? Absolutely. So I, I think the biggest thing that I've changed is how I listen um, is like, again, so the function of the actual instrument can change depending on what the group is. It's a very like, why like it has one of the biggest ranges, obviously not like a piano, but it's like it's a big range of an instrument. And, you know, you can depending on how you're supporting what you're playing for, whether that's your like solo guitar or you're in a band of like 50 musicians, you're just this tiny little thing, um, really finding your space on that. So I think after all this like experimentation of like different sounds you can get from the instruments, like really finding, okay, where is my spot to fit in um, with the actual instrument and appreciating that and like actually just living in that rather than trying to be like, okay, this is, this is about me even if you're not thinking about that it's like it's a very easy way to be like okay this is i'm going to play as much as i can because i guess hopefully hopefully after this i've become more of a tasteful musician like playing less playing more specifically what could be helpful rather than just what um you know maybe it's like you're you can be taught how to play a genre but until you actually live in that genre you don't understand what is going on the relationship between your instrument and the other stuff. Um, I think rhythmically, I think everybody should be really practicing with a metronome because that's something that I've uh, wishing that I did more of, even, you know, because it's like this modern world as a guitarist or even any instrumentalist, it's like you will need to be able to record yourself. You'll probably be recorded quite frequently. And there's a lot of gigs like pit, pit gigs that you're literally playing to a click. So it's like, if you're not familiar with, intimately familiar with how you're reacting to that um you're you're kind of setting yourself apart in the bad way kind of like if you're unable to do that then that's that's unfortunate for you but um but yeah so i think to answer your question simply and it's, just, it's changed the way that i actually listen to how i'm fitting into the ensemble whether that ensemble is myself or you know the the rest of the group so that being said, I, I loved your point about pop music being on the edge. There's actually, uh, to tie it back into the David Tronzo guitar bass things, um, Ethan Grusko, is that his name? Do you know him? He's like a producer. He he actually has retrofitted his guitars with a rubber bridge, um, which has kind of like been the thing that he does. So you can hear it on like some of Taylor Swift stuff or Phoebe Bridger's stuff. It's like, it literally is a very similar sound to using like the rubber corks in the guitar, but it's like, it creates this really interesting, like, 
percussive effect um this really really interesting and and cool so that's like on the edge because it's like you're pushing the actual guitar in a different direction but yet it's like on these big name artists so yeah that's an example of that which i was thinking about when you mentioned that so and like what you're doing in some way because it is commercial music yeah exactly literally commercial music it's very related to pop and yet film like there's the classic example of the godzilla sound being a leather glove on the strings of an upright bass like yeah <laughs> like there's all these like super out techniques that do it and yet like somehow it has to be very relatable yeah right i i love that comment that you made earlier about <clears throat> this idea that people will say oh that trailer music or pop music is it's so simple you know what is there to it and not understanding the absolute depth not just that you have to bring to the sonic reality of that music, but also that you had to bring to yourself to be able to, because you could say, oh, it's just a triad, but it's like the thousands of hours you've put into practicing your instrument and creating a sound that lets that triad sound the way it does, right? And I think that's really important for people to know um, that that's why that you build yourself up as an artist, because then everything you do is through that vehicle yeah and it's also i mean taking yourself seriously um both on a professional standpoint it's like okay i'm gonna this is the minimum that i'm gonna charge for a gig or else i'm not gonna take that gig kind of thing you're setting it's like that's an example of it but also like okay when i'm putting in the effort to study something i'm not just gonna shave off the top of what's necessary it's like i i want to go deep like as you're saying ian like the deep enough that is usable but then it's like maybe not spending your life on it unless that's really what you're committing to, but like understanding that you are a multifaceted person with different interests, whether that's even within music, you have different interests within music that you can't dedicate yourself to everything. You know, um, one of my good friends at Berkeley, um, who's one of my roommates, uh, fantastic multi-instrumentalist, Quinn Bashand. Um, I remember being kind of shocked when I was like, trying to show him some like Brazilian, you know, fingerstyle stuff that I was doing. And he had just no interest. It was like, that's something that he did not want to even think about because in his mind, it's like at the time he was like so deep in like Irish Celtic guitar and gypsy jazz. And he was fantastic, fantastic at both of them, like scary, fantastic. <laughs> and then um, what I understood that is in terms of like, those were his two pots that he's putting, you know, his, his money into right now. And he's not really interested in diversifying his investments, which I think is a, you know, a very valuable lesson for me to learn in terms of like, because I, I always came from like early on, even guitars, like I'm going to learn every style. I'm going to play every style. I'm going to be good at everything. But, and I kept telling myself, it's like, nope, no, you're, you are going to be good. You know, people keep saying you can be a jack of all trades and then master of none, but you're going to be good. And it's like, Maybe that's, uh, maybe, you know, I, right now, at least I'm feeling is like, yeah, I need to specifically choose what I'm working on. Um, and I guess on a more macro level right now, it's kind of like film scoring. Like I could be practicing more each day, which would probably benefit my composing in a way, but it's like, because I'm working here at this company in this chair, it's like, I am focusing on trying to work on my composition and like production skills and trying to be relevant in terms of, as you're saying, like the modern fitting into this modern world, always pushing like, what is a modern sound of a guitar? What is a modern sound of a guitar? You know, um, it's great that you can get a great 70s sound, but that at least in this industry is like, if you're going to do a 70s based commercial or 70s based track, that's when you use it. Otherwise it's like, how do you modernize that sound and fit it into the modern world? 
And that's been probably the most difficult thing because you have to immerse yourself in modern music, whether that's listening to pop, listening to new albums, listening to your friends that come up with new music. I mean, you got to do that because you're a good friend, but it's also like, what are they doing? Because they're, they're on the forefront. Like a lot of the people that I went with to Berkeley with, their careers are starting to take off in terms of like, what are they actually, they're making a name for themselves, but also like, that's really, really cool what they're doing. So you got to support your friends. Um, you got to support your friends because they're your friends. We also got to support your friends because you're all growing at different places in different directions. So you can kind of like benefit from what they've learned and what they've explored and be like, oh, that's really cool. I'm going to try that. Because even if you tried to replicate it exactly, you probably won't. Like based on your influences and what you've come from, you won't nail it. So you'll probably end up somewhere that's interesting enough that you can apply to your own realm, um, which I think is like, yeah, it's it's, it's pretty cool. So. You know, that's so interesting because like really what you're saying, like you're taking these things from other people, like your roommate yeah, you know, was so deep into trying to sound like, you know, doing the Celtic guitar or doing gypsy jazz that he didn't want to touch that Brazilian stuff. Right. But like, realistically, like if I'm imagining you like Ben playing it, it's like, if you were doing Irish guitar, like I doubt you would even be attempting to sound exactly like Artie McGlynn, you know, like, <laughs> but if you were doing Brazilian, I don't think you would do exactly like what Gilberto Gill was doing. Like the way that you were talking about, like finding the right thing to play at the right time and listening to your sound within an ensemble is like a really critical way of even like going about playing a lot of different styles that like no matter what style you're playing like really like you're gonna sound like you right yeah exactly it's and also like the styles that you even attempt to dip your toes into you're gonna get an influence of that whether that's like oh that was like a rhythmic maybe it's a motif that's kind of in that style it's like okay if i really zoom in on how the mic micro swing of it is you slow it down you really live in it you speed it up speed it up that you can feel that that's like you now you have that as a part of you um which i guess as a side note it's like rhythm i think is like swing is something that i wish i wish there's a better way of teaching how to determine what amount of swing different styles have because it's not as simple as like okay there's really swinging jazz. It's like triplet swing. And then there's like, it's like, what is the swing of funk music? Is it actually perfectly straight? Or is there something going on with like the second 16th? It's like, you know, or like, you know, it's like there's different realms like that, which I think with the modern dig digital audio workstations, DAWs, it's getting easier because you can actually adjust the swing value and like find what makes it groove because, um, yeah, that's that's the other side of working with a metronome is like, how do you play off of that to really create an interaction with the rhythm rather than just playing what's on the page? Because what's on the page is is like 1% of what actually needs to be represented. Um, so, you know, Cheryl, as Ben was talking, I was thinking, um, I wanted your perspective on this idea that it's really like what you're talking about, Ben, is serving the music. And then at different times in your life, in order to do that, you have to focus on different things. Mm -hmm. And um, I just think that's interesting, Cheryl. Like, obviously, you found that through over the years with different projects. Like, could you talk about that for a little bit from your perspective? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, what Ben is saying is true. I mean, there's time and then there's feel and everything. You know, oftentimes I say to students, 
if you take people from England and you take people from Louisiana and you take people from Minnesota or whatever, they all speak English, but none of them sound the same. <laughs> so it's like you can have really great metronomic time, but that doesn't mean it grooves or swings or, and you know, yeah, all everything has its own swing. So I, I mean, I, yeah, I've I've had kind of a wacky career where I've played, you know, with someone like Richard Bona, who's from Cameroon, and and trying to figure out how to fit into that, or you know, rock players and you know, artists and singer-songwriters and then jazz and, you know. So for me, it is always trying to find that place where it swings because all the fundamentals of all music are the same, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know, melody, harmony, and rhythm. And then, but the thing that makes them unique to that is that swing. So it is fun. For me, if I'm playing something that is, you know, whatever, I'm trying to play in Richard Bona's band and play that West African guitar groove, I've got to really find that place where it grooves, you know, because the notes, yeah, they're major scales and minor scales and major chords and minor chords in all the music <laughs> that we can agree on. But those little things, those things about a music that make it really unique and p trying to get your hands around that, I think, is the secret to making making it happen, making it sound authentic, you know. Yeah, it's deep. It's deep stuff. You know, sometimes I think it's that deep stuff that I remember when I studied with Rodney Jones, he said to me, you know, think how long it took you to just be able to play chant and understand harmony and like how much work that took. When you start to get into these other kind of topics, it's sort of like a, a painter, like, uh, you know, Picasso or, or, you know, how they refine their brush stroke. Like those little textures or those little fibers or something like think that's like even a deeper and harder thing as harder harder than all that other stuff you learn to get to there like you keep getting into that like that yeah that little brush stroke or that little angle that makes the whole thing happen you know <laughs> it never ends really <laughs> I think that's beautiful and um I mean obviously we could talk about this all day which hopefully we'll get to do more and more um but I want to take a second here and just give a really nice shout out to the American Roots program which is an institute, um, so it's it's separate from the departments. It's a it's a grant funded institute. So if you're at Berkeley, it means that you can be as involved as in, in it as you'd like, and you don't have to have credits that you need. It's all free. Um, there's these wonderful musicians who come in and teach guitar. They also do listening sessions. They've been our friends forever. Like since I was a kid, I grew up with these folks because as a classical guitarist, you can't help but go over into finger style. And so you get to meet these wonderful people and they come to campus. It's run by Matt Glazer, who at one time was the chair of the string department, which, you know, so firmly sets it in all strings. Right. And, um, and Matt is just creative and, and fantastic. And it has some wonderful donors that support it. And, um, I think it became a home for you, Ben, and it became a home for you, Ian, in a, in a beautiful way when you were students. So I just wanted to to give that its due in all of the fantastic musicians when you think about who's come through that program and use that as a creative outlet and a way to explore history and, and depth in this music of our culture. I think it's really, really nice. So um, you want to share a, a quick thought or two, either of you, about that experience for you? 
Sure. Yeah. Um, I think absolutely, uh, I would say almost life-changing because it's like they are so welcoming in terms of like the different styles that they, they offer. It's like, you know, um, you know, I grew up playing Canadian fiddle music, which is not the same as American fiddle music. And, um, it's, it's similar in a lot of ways, but it's like, it is different. Um, and just having people that are actually living and breathing in that world, like the artists they bring in are touring artists that are, you know, they're, they're seeing, okay, what is working? What is, you know, getting people excited in this world? And I think that's important in terms of both finding your place in the modern world of like, how do you make a career in music? You have to excite people. You have to, you know, as, as I was saying with trailer music, like pull them out of their homes and take, you know, they're going to spend money and come see this thing. And so they're really good at creating excitement, both in the students, but also like teaching you what is, you know, both the tradition. So like understanding where you're coming from with all of the styles that they're, they're teaching, um, like the micro styles of like, here's regional versions of this tune. How does that compare to the regional version over here of that tune? Like what are the differences? Why are there differences and stuff like that? Um, so it was just really fascinating. But so some of the, the, the people that I studied with, um, there like, so Bruce Molsky is this fiddle player, which he's also a fantastic banjo player and guitarist, like, you know, multi-instrumentalist guy, but he actually, I think it was a, I don't know if it was a civil engineer or something for most of his life. And then all of a sudden he just became a roots musician. So it's like, you, you know, I thought that was a really cool thing that he had an entire life before his music. And then he just dived into music and now he's like world renowned as being one of the best, like, you know, fiddle players, like roots musicians. Um, Tony Trishka, who is a banjo player, which I feel extremely, you know, grateful to have had a couple lessons with him. Um, he was actually Bella Flex banjo teacher, but you know, these guys, sure, you can go in and learn the instrument that they're teaching, but the cool thing is you can go in and learn whatever. You can go in and bring in, you know, bring in a guitar to a fiddle lesson and you'll learn something that you'll uh, take away. Um, and all of them are really wonderful teachers. Um, uh, recently, uh, Woody Mann, which was a really wonderful teacher that I had for a couple of years, um, he recently passed away. And that was, that was kind of a shock, but Woody, I, I don't think I met anyone like him in terms of his openness and how his technique at teaching wasn't like, okay, here, go home, do this, which he, he did do that for some people. But for me, it was like, I showed up, I feel like a hole in my background was that I didn't really spend enough time learning about the blues. You know, it's like, cause the blues is like a foundation of a lot of music and his specialty was country blues. So that's like, um, the acoustic blues music, um, and so the way he taught me that is that I would just show up and we just start jamming basically. Like he'd be like repeating a riff and then and I'd figure that riff out. I'd be playing it. Then he'd play something else. It was like, there was talking going on, but there was mostly just playing music. And that I felt was a really organic way of teaching the instrument. Like Victor Wooten talks about of like music as a language. Um, this was like one of the rare occurrences that I actually was taught in that way. That was like, this is an actual language that you're learning, not like, okay, go home, listen to all these people. Okay. Transcribe all these guys, which is, which is an excellent way of learning. But I feel like that's a different type of learning than you're sitting in a room. You know how to play this instrument, at least a little bit, you know, where these notes are, how are the notes that you're playing different than the notes that the other person's playing? And how do you relate that those notes and actually change the way you're playing them to relate to this person um so it was it was really cool um so woody was a fantastic mentor uh, teacher and then we actually became friends like i visited him a couple times in new york um and we actually worked on a documentary together it was like it was really really cool um kind of 
the thing. And then I guess a little short aside on that, uh, Kim, I remember you saying something to me, I was in your office, I think c- came in for advice or something. And you, this, this thing is stuck with me, basically like the way that Berkeley is different than a traditional conservatory. If you survive a conservatory and you actually make it through, you'll probably be a virtuoso, very excellent at your instrument, but you're kind of on your own. Like the conservatory is there to help you build into something, but then it's like, you're, you're out on your own while Berkeley, it's like, you can, kind of fake your way through the entire college, but it's more about the connections that are built at Berkeley that uh, set you up for your career. So if you work hard throughout your entire, you know, and, and you make relationships with the people that you're there, as well as the teachers, you'll probably be okay. And that's, I think, or okay and better, you know, and that's one of the most beautiful things about Berkeley is that like, because it's such an international school with multifaceted programs, super specific, but also like they're able to help you find your own path. Um, I'm grateful that I've, you know, I worked really hard when I was at Berkeley to help me set up hopefully the rest of my life in this career of music. Um, so anyway, that, that just stuck with me that I thought was a really cool differentiating thing between Berkeley and conservatories. Yeah, so. I think one of what I meant by that was when, when you're in a conservatory, you're really in this small cohort of people and your teacher is your mentor and you're with them every week for multiple hours Mm -hmm. and they're helping you shape in one specific direction. And then you have to build the breadth of your life on your own. Mm -hmm. Like you have them as connectors for the rest of your life. You have a family of musicians, but if you want to do what you're doing and you want to do different things, you have to find those different things. Whereas Berkeley, the breadth is here for you. Like there's nothing really we don't have. Mm-hmm. Like you've just proven it, right? You took classical classes and, and you took all the roots things and you took Turkish microtonal music and you did film scoring. and But the depth is on you. Mm. You know, you have to commit to the depth because you don't have this one mentor who's like following you through all the steps, making sure that you hit this level, right? And so I think there's challenges in, in both instances, but I think you you found your way at a place because of who you are as a musician that makes the most sense for you. And I, I think that's great that you did that. And I, and I love what you said. Um, also Paul Rochelle and, and Annie brains who, who are here in the roots program, all of their things that are in that oral tradition, like what it would have been like decades yeah. ago to sit down with people. And, um, and I remember meeting Tony and, and Paul and, and Woody years and years ago. And, and it's just like, it's just really cool to see some people immersed in that part of our tradition. So I think it's great what you've done to take all these different parts of yourself and start to build your life professionally. And it's fun to turn on these trailers on Netflix and, and HBO and all these things and hear your stuff. It's just it's very, very cool for us. Um, so Cheryl, as we're coming to the end of our coffee today, like what's on your mind as we're, we're finishing up? I don't know. This was really great. Thanks, Ben. It was really, uh, I learned a lot about, you know, that work that that you do, that style of writing and and cool. Yeah, it was really inspiring. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. What about you, Ian? Yeah, I mean, there's just so many cool things to check out. I mean, all that talk about, you know, opening up and hearing the instrument differently is like, really cool. And I guess I'll say one last thing, which is like the way that we connect pop to like new music and like out things. I'm just going to open it up as conversation for another time, but it's just as cool. Like as somebody who studied like traditional music, 
to like look back at what's so different about traditional music as like another source of wealth of like different sort of out techniques is like it's the parallel that's opposite but also very similar so it's all the same i mean it's all the same stuff and anything that gets you creating is good i think it's a good note to leave it on so um thank you ian thank you cheryl and thank you ben um thanks for being with us and um we'll be with everybody on the next coffee talk Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for having me.